This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week is the co-founder of a company that makes board games. And I have been, for several years, maybe even almost several decades now, been under the impression that board games were almost passe, but gosh darn it, they are not. My guest is a fellow named Drew Worley who is the co-founder with his brother, Cole Worley, of Whirligig Games. Drew, welcome to Big Talk. Thank you so much for having me. It's a treat to be on WFHB. You and your brother are making some noise in the board game area, (laughs) but a specific board game area, historical board games. New Yorker Magazine, even, for gosh sakes, has called Brother Cole... A big-name designer. Whirligig's website, which is whirligig.com, says these games are high-quality history games that treat their subjects and players seriously. What do we mean by historical board games? Well, games have been objects of play where you're creating a model and you're interacting with it, right? Interactive storytelling experiences. Hmm. And that's a wide range of narrative tools to tell a wide variety of stories with. So sometimes board games get lumped into the fantasy narrative types or science fiction narrative types when really games are uh, capable of telling very personal, intimate stories, but also stories of history that might be resounding with a lot of different kinds of audiences, a lot of different kinds of people, but could carry stories that reflect our world and that could say something a little bit more about our world. You mean actual history that happened? Correct. Yeah. So all of our games that we work on and in the field of historical tabletop board games involve designers and developers and publishing companies that are trying to kind of sort through their own feelings about any particular historical moment. And they all have voices behind them. Every game has an argument that it's trying to say about uh, whatever historical moment, right? So this might mean that a war game designer making a game about the Battle of the Bulge, there's a lot of war games about the Battle of the Bulge, but they all are done a little differently because of the designer trying to sort out their emotions or really sort out their approach to the model of that particular event. Well, we know what happened in the Battle of the Bulge. So how how can you make a game out of that? Well, it's about who plays what side of that battle ah. and what scale or scope that the storytelling is happening. I mean, a, a single-player war game called The Halls of Hegra, where you're playing medics in the trenches, huh. right? It is not about operational warfare between different divisions. It's intimate storytelling of the people that are doing the support yeah. in that conflict. Well, the old line was uh, during World War II, for every single uh, combat soldier, there were 10 behind him right, uh, right. who weren't in combat, who were just doing support, including medics and cooks and truck drivers and right. mechanics, all the rest. And aren't those important narratives to not get lost in our media? 
Uh-huh. Right? So tabletop gaming could be representative of the sort of media experiences that one finds in novels or movies. And it doesn't have to just be set in the access versus allies uh, roll dice conflict that we have experienced over and over again. So we're trying to treat our historical gamings a bit like I'm trying to punch up. I'm We're hoping that our games can show that people are interested in a wide variety of topics, but also diverse perspectives, even inside well-trodden historical moments. Now, you mentioned the comparison to novels, and I've seen that in various uh, places, stories about these historical board games. They're almost as good as novels for the people who are playing. Right, and I think not just from the perspective that the games are like novels, but all of our games are going to be tying players. When we publish our games, they tie players directly to primary and secondary resources so that when a player gets their game and Uh their rule book, at the back of that rule book is lists of books. We give them reading lists. No kidding. So that you can extend the learning experience of the game into some documents that are well vetted that we used as our, uh, that created our own perspective of the game so that players can experience our arguments with the source material that we use to inform those decisions. Okay, again, it's Whirly Gig Games, and our guest this week is Drew Whirly, who's the co-founder, along with his brother Cole Whirly, of Whirly Gig Games. You can uh, find out more about that at whirlygig.com. I'm going to spell that, W-E-H-R. L-E-G-I-G, whirligig.com. Now, I'm going to name three of the games. Two are out. One is coming that have come out from Whirligig Games back in 2019, Pax Pamir. Now, that's about the fall of the Durrani Empire in Afghanistan. And you take a a, a sort of a different uh, twist on it. Uh, we can play this game from the point of view of the tribes people of Afghanistan after the colonial empires were beating the hell out of each other. Correct. So this takes place during the period called the Great Game. Uh-huh. And this was written about extensively back in London as and had pop novels written, and it was as popular as maybe like a James Bond or a spy thriller huh. for back in the UK. I mean, this was a period full of espionage and drama that was being played out thousands of miles away. And while it existed in the cultural uh, landscape of, uh, of the folks back in London, this game players play the local warlords navigating a tumultuous time when people from all over the world are coming in to their historic homes and they're having to navigate the tumult and shifting alliances when there are conflicting coalitions and influences in the region. Now, the people who wrote these histories were always the colonial gang because there was Russia, there was the UK. Well, importantly, there was also stories that were being written from the Central Asian perspective. And uh-huh. the primary texts are of of that history, of the Afghan history, of the Durrani um uh of the Durrani ancestors that are doing the record keeping is mm-hmm. influencing the shape of the argument of the game. So uh-huh. importantly, not just how we're representing the history 
from the perspective of the player, but also from the primary texts and also the artwork in the game. So all of the artwork in the game is being pulled from British artists, Mm -hmm. British soldiers that were idling with their free time and drawing. And those drawings became lithographs that a library had for us so we could take scans and bring them back to life in the game. Wow. But also Russian artists and Russian paintings and also local Central Asian drawings and paintings as well are all featured in the game. So everything is has a source, has a historical figure that it's representing, but also we're trying to pull from the historic period artwork as well. Afghanistan, where empires go to die. We've heard that uh, any number of times. Uh, uh, how about another game which uh, came out in 2022 from Whirligig Games? John Company, it was called, and it was about... The East India Company and different uh, wealthy families trying to take advantage of and hook up with, I guess, the East India Company, which was not a sweetheart player, that's for darn sure. Right. The Our Game John Company taps into my brother's extensive time researching the East India Company while he was at grad school at UT Austin. And this game puts players in those families— in the most dark satirical backdrop because their motivations are driven by profit, by greed, by prestige and reputation, and also by people feeling like they're just doing their job and they find themselves complicit in the large machine of bureaucracy, right? It was the largest corporation that the world's maybe ever seen, and well-meaning people were just doing the thing that made sense for their family. Right. And then empire happens with a capital H. (laughs) If you're a player and you are uh, identifying with one of these people who is connected to East India Company, you'll learn about the motivations. You'll also learn that maybe they weren't the swellest people or this whole operation wasn't the greatest thing in the world for everybody involved. Right. And some of it's also trying to do some historical retelling of how we imagine a lot of the Jane Austen novels, these great Victorian novels in these large estates with a lot of the drama of the London season and who's courting (laughs) who and where is that money coming from? Ah. It's coming from the uncles that worked at the East India Company who wanted to win favor for their niece. So what were they doing? They were maybe hiring someone else into a different position in the company as they're exploiting wealth and performing, uh, they're drawing money and wealth, they're looting East, uh, like uh, the, a southern province, um, and it's filing and f- uh, all of their motivations to perform those actions. If you play these games, you'll learn about history, you'll learn about geography, you'll learn about economics in a sense, obviously, about military strategy, etc. Well, a lot of it's also tapping into Cole and I being like, absolute lifelong gamers. (laughs) Um, And I mean, some of our first games that we played were 70s operational war games Uh that were made, you know, out of Baltimore and New York, games like Third Reich or Advanced Squad Leader, where the combat system is is robust and it's interesting and it's tactical. But the storytelling beats that those games could do were finding moments in the work that that we're currently doing on some underrepresented histories and trying to bring in some of those like cutthroat tactical elements yeah. in a game about family prestige and legacy. Wow. Right? Um, because we know how much those beats 
and those stories from those amazing old games resonated with us. And we're trying to share that same feeling with a wider range of stories. Now, this John Company game, the 2022 game by Whirligig Games, uh, about the East India Company and things surrounding it, was named one of the best board games of the year by Smithsonian Magazine. And Smithsonian Magazine actually said, this kind of game is, quote, for the history obsessed. (laughs) (laughs) You guys both are obsessed with history. We have to. I mean, in anyone that uh, I think thinks and reflects on world events, be it contemporary or not, finds moments, microcosms in history that both are reflecting the past and the future at the same time. And I feel like there aren't enough publishers and developers making games like us. So I do feel like our work is urgent because if we don't make these sorts of games, I don't know if other other publishers would risk the work that it takes to tell these sorts of stories or if those games would even get made at all. Now, in 2024, this year, you will be releasing a, a, a board game, an historical board game called Molly House. It's about the, the cloistered queer culture of Georgian England. Molly House, our third game, is the result of a contest, actually, a design contest that we were chairs and sponsors of to increase the diversity of voices creating games and also diversifying the subject matter of historical gaming. How very true, because a lot of what I read tells me that the vast majority of board game designers are white males. Correct. So you have to, so there's a couple of different ways. You can incentivize, how, how does diversity happen at a yeah. large scale? How do you diversify an industry? And some folks got together and thought, we should create not just an initiative, but we need to do as much as we can to incentivize diversifying the industry and in our niche of historical gaming we started the we helped start the Zenobia project ah. the Zenobia award which is directly aimed at it which is cash prizes mentorship paths to publication and help development of the final games to publication one of the ways that you're making this thing a reality is you did some crowd crowdfunding for it you raised over a quarter million dollars, actually over $288,000 crowdfunding. Who's given this money to you guys? Um, folks from all around the world. I can't say it enough that our backers that came out to crowdfund a game about queer subcultures, a historic queer community from 1720, people came out online and supported us. About half of our backers are coming from the States the rest from Europe and various places. But people come out because they want to see not just, let's say, themselves represented in media, but they want projects like this to exist Mm -hmm. because they see this as if this project does well, more projects like this could also do well. And maybe someday that might help shape the way that the mainstream board game selection that you have access to at Barnes & Noble look a little different. Now, within a few months, as I say, you're going to have a total of three games out. Uh, Where are people going to be able to buy these games? Because we primarily rely on crowdfunding events, that is the direct way that we get supported to make these games. Uh Traditional models around games involve a publisher, like Whirligig, making 10 games a year 
and the quantity of those games are all being sold at distribution levels. So they're playing the volume game. Uh-huh. We know that Molly House is not going to be going into Target or every store. Right. So we have to rely on a direct model. What we've been finding is that our games are actually doing pretty well in conventional retail stores. So your customer base knows where to go to get this. You're not going to happen upon this if you don't know about this in advance. Correct. And we are trying to break that a little. I'm not trying to break it. What we're trying to do is expand that with titles of varying weight. So John Company is our heaviest, most complicated game. We want Molly House to be approachable and maybe being it might be a great fit in a in a board game store or in a more conventional retail environment too to see as an experiment is that something that our publishing company can do now historical board games uh, sounds like a wonderful idea but guess what there's been criticism Lots of criticism, Uh, one being uh, sometimes the players have to adopt roles of really villainous characters in history. For instance, here's a New York Times headline dealing with this issue uh, from August 1st, 2019. Quote, should board gamers play the roles of racists, slavers, and Nazis? Well, I put it to you, Drew Worley, should they? Well, it depends on how you want to see your media, right? Is all media supposed to be fun? And a lot of people approach games as it's time for fun. It's the end of the day. I want to put out a game onto the table and I just need something to be fun. We're having a watershed moment in the last 20 years or more where folks at night want something that they can mull over, that they can think on, that they can reflect what it meant. And- to make a game about, uh, like John Company, about the East India Company, we thought, well, what if we designed this game from the Indian perspective and uh-huh. of folks that are experiencing all of these forces coming through? We realized that the message of the game was actually stronger if we put players directly in the place of the families so that they knew all of their motivations that led the subcontinent to be changed forever. So I can't tell you if it's right or wrong, but I will say that the, p- the position that you ask a player to be put in from the designer and the developer's perspective has huge ramifications for the how the narrative is shaped for the play. Sort of like Hannah Arendt's uh, idea about normal people uh, doing evil, not even knowing they're doing evil. Culpability is uh, the backbone of empire. <laughs> oh, <Right>? boy. <laughs> oh, boy. And, and hey... The United States is an empire now, too, for gosh sakes. People like you and I are just uh, normal consumers, and uh, we want good price for gasoline and a good price for heavy metals and all for our devices. Uh, It's It's also why we feel like the game about empire should also be the one with a 50-page rulebook. It has to have bureaucracy even in the approach to the game. I wouldn't want a simple game about empire. Wow. If I want a game about empire, I want it to I want you to get lost in all of the systems that you're juggling. I'm juggling the price of goods, I'm juggling my personal assets and you get lost in what the motivations are your rival families and of yourself. The total market for board games grew by 6.5% in 2022. That's all board games. And as I let off this uh, broadcast, 
I didn't even realize people were playing board games anymore. When I was a kid, we played Monopoly in life. Those were the games, real simple games, and as you said, fun, just yeah. pure fun. But this is this demands concentration and uh, analytic uh, capabilities, and it, it demands a brain. The hobby is growing in a really exciting way. It's not just growing because folks want more games and they're playing more games than ever. The kinds of games are drastically different than they were 40 years ago than they were 10 years ago. And navigating those directions that are uh, in the industry is really tricky. But knowing that even with the changes, the niche of historical gaming has been growing writ large and has been able to support projects like us and game companies like Holland Spiel and some incredible other small indie publishers is uh, shows a sign of health in the industry. My guest this week, Drew Wehrle, who is the co-founder with his brother Cole Wehrle of Wehrle Gig Games. It started as my side gig. It was Cole and I's side gig. So uh. we're both named, I'm Drew Wehrle and my brother's Cole Wehrle. And we didn't know if we were going to be able to make games for a living at all. You were just doing it for fun. Cole was in grad school and just about to start a new developer job huh. um, up in St. Paul. And I was still working at the Chicago Botanic Garden because I'm coming from the world of nature education. And we thought, you know what? Let's start getting our ducks in the row so that we can make a historical board game that we have been designing and working on for a long time. Let's start a company so that we can start a crowdfunding campaign. And this is going to be our side gig. And it remained our side gig until I thought I'm ready to quit my job and do this full time. So this is now my whirly full gig. So full -time you're, gig. you're saying this is your day job. This is now my day job for the last four years it has been. Vice Magazine was talking about historical board games, saying they're a stage for gameplay that realizes that colonialism and its aftermaths are complex issues that shape our modern world. Uh, again, you can learn more about them at Whirligig Games, whirligig.com. I'm going to spell that again. I, I have to. W-E-H-R-L-E-G-I-G, whirligig.com. In the mid-1990s, there seemed to be sort of a transition in the board game world from Ameritrash games to sort of a Euro style or Euro games thing. A lot of it has to do with the German and the Euro school of design, but also that tastes were shifting. Uh -huh. Tastes were shifting to soft, like softer mechanics and points and a bit more of an analytical style gameplay. Euro games, you're converting actions, you're placing workers, and I'm getting points. And the thematic backbone of Ameritrash games, where I'm rolling a bunch of dice and I'm, uh, I might have a combat table that I'm referring it all to, there's a lot of randomness and probability. But the shifting of the culture towards games that are coming from European designers really set the foothold for the modern board game scene. And a lot of this is ushered in by games that, again, in the late 90s, like Settlers of Catan, a German-designed game that informed the next 20-plus years. Now, Drew Wehrle, you live here in the Bloomington area. Cole does not. Where does he live now? 
uh, Cole's up in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I get up there about every month, but we both did our undergrad at IU. Uh, we love Bloomington. Um, and I get to have, uh, while I go up there, Cole gets to come down and visit family every once in a while too. So we get to bounce between our two uh, college towns. Now, Cole designed games for another company before you guys started your company. One game, which is fairly well known in in, uh, this world, is called Root, where woodland creatures are players in a geopolitical scenario. And the other was called Oath, uh, feudal statecraft. This is really historical, deep historical stuff. But with Cole's work at Leader Games, where he is still the creative director and in-house designer um, at Leader Games. uh, So that is absolutely his day job. This is still his whirly gig uh, Uh for us. Now, with Root, that has been Cole's largest and most successful game, including digital copies. I'm sure a million copies have been sold of, of Root. It has allowed that company to grow from three people to now almost 20 staff. Uh, which has been really exciting. That uh, was the big hit. That was their big hit. And it allowed Cole to have somewhat of a um, of a passion project uh, follow-up game, Oath, which asked people to play the historiography of empires growing and collapsing and the people that are navigating um, <laughs> the, uh, the story of lineage and legacy across games. So the game, every time you play it, it changes for the next person that plays that box. Now, Cole, as we say, is the designer. What do you do for the company, uh, Whirly Gig Games? I like to say I do everything else. (laughs) (laughs) So I get to be the lead developer on our historical game company. So I get to take the projects from their design stage and make sure that they are ready for print. And that involves playing them a lot, making edits, file managing. But I also do all of the logistics, all of the sales, and everything in between. It doesn't work without you. Of course, it doesn't work without Cole either, both of you. And whenever I need a creative itch and have to scratch any sort of a desire to write or to think about any complicated design problem, I get to have that with our work, with our creative work and our historical games. But then I also know that I'm in charge of all of the analytical heavy lifting. I read a little thing in Slate.com that said, Cole Whirly dreams of someday making a board game about Reconstruction, which is a fascinating period of American history and a period that we ought to know a heck of a lot more about. Correct. And it's, uh, go figure, underrepresented in the gaming space as well. No There's kidding. so many games that are interesting. The Civil War about the Civil is War. there. Yeah, but... Not reconstruction. And, yeah. the, and the narrative, the narrative importance of what players are asked to navigate a time as tumultuous and as conflicting between various factions during the reconstruction period feels like it could be modeled by some existing archetypes. Like I think of the counterinsurgency models that are being developed in the last 10 years in the gaming space have been a really interesting tool to create a lot of other similar models around uh, tumultuous periods at the formation of states or the influx of empire. My guest this week has been Drew Wehrle, who's the co-founder of Gig Games, along with his brother Cole Wehrle. They create and they market 
historical board games. You can go to whirligig.com, W-E-H-R-L-E-G-I-G, whirligig.com to learn more about this. Drew, thanks for being on Big Talk. It was a pleasure and really nice talking to you.